0: Turn with me again this morning to Philippians chapter 4 as we find ourselves once again in this fourth chapter of Paul's great letter to the Philippians. As we've examined this chapter over the past few months, we've found ourselves in the midst of Paul's directives to the people of God concerning spiritual stability. The exhortation in chapter 4 verse 1 in which Paul calls us to stand firm in the Lord sets the agenda for this concluding section of exhortations that we see in verses 2 through 9. Paul is calling us to spiritual steadfastness. He's concerned that the people of God be a spiritually stable people, firmly fixed on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to stand fast. To be unwavering and immovable in our commitment to Christ and to His Word, even as we face the pressures of a hostile society, hostile against precisely that commitment. And the church must be marked by spiritual stability. But among all that we've spoken about on this topic of true biblical steadfastness, there are two overarching, sort of all-encompassing categories of spiritual instability that threaten the church in every age. And those marks of spiritual instability run rampant throughout the church at large today and are in large measure a cause for the unhealthiness of the so-called evangelical church. The first is what you'd call anti-intellectualism, an intellectual laziness, an aversion to deep and focused thinking. In keeping with our culture of instant gratification, Many professing Christians are marked by a spirit that desires every spiritual lesson that you try to teach them to be microwavable. Teaching from the Word of God has to be served up, ready-made, in easily digestible portions like a spiritual hot pocket. The moment you require these people to quiet themselves, to gird up the loins of their minds and to examine and evaluate and reflect upon what a given text might be saying... As soon as you ask them to closely follow a precise line of argumentation in a text or think through how one portion of scriptural teaching harmonizes with another portion, well, they they check out. That's it. Sorry, not for me. Can't tell you how many times. I've had even dear friends of mine, in their desire to steer clear of the deep end of the theological pool, say to me, Mike, I'm just a simple guy. I'm just not all that smart, I'm definitely not an academic type, and, and I'm not even all that big a fan of reading in general. And, and, I'd, and I'd say to them, but these are, these are truths of God, these are, these are the means by which we know Him and learn of Him, these are things into which angels long to look. And they'd say, look, Jesus' disciples didn't have PhDs, okay? They were fishermen, they were the simple guys, they were blue-collar workers, And so these people confuse biblical simplicity, which is a good thing and a real thing. The Bible is not complicated. God's truth is simple. But they confuse that biblical simplicity with being simplistic. And they imagine that if every thought in the Christian life is not immediately accessible to someone of below average intelligence with very little mental strain on their part, well then that thought must be convoluted by human reason and inherently unbiblical, On the other end of the spectrum, there's an equal and opposite error that characterizes many Christians. Uh, These are the people who love to have the conversations that I was just speaking about. They're the intellectuals. They're the the good students. They love devoting their mind to the study of exalted themes, to Scripture and to theology. That kind of thing excites them. They could tell you all about the historical context of Obadiah at the drop of a hat. They could wax eloquent about the fine points of distinction between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. They may even have a great interest in apologetics, of defending the faith against attacks from unbelievers and all the intellectual areas that that would require you to know. And yet despite their commitment to giving their minds to study and consideration of the loftiest themes, these people always seem to be making the least progress in sanctification. What I mean by that is not that everybody who's serious about thinking makes little progress. I'm talking about the subset of those people who have both of these things in common, who love thinking and yet they make very little progress in grace. They've become great theoreticians and yet they don't seem to have the self-discipline to translate all of that knowledge into godly practice. It's as if they're content with the theory only. As if they believe the Christian life consists in merely thinking the right thoughts about things or having the right theology. But they don't seem to realize that the whole purpose of theology, the whole purpose of discipline study, the whole purpose of thinking deeply is so that they might put into practice what they learn, that their lives might be shaped and driven truly by the Word of God. Both of these errors, intellectual laziness and practical laziness, you could call it, are deadly threats to the true biblical steadfastness and spiritual stability that Paul calls us to in Philippians chapter 4. Why? Well, think about it. Of all the means that Paul provides by which we're to attain to this steadfastness, unity in the body of Christ, verses 2 and 3, joy in the Lord, verse 4 a spirit of gentleness as we interact with others, verse 5, and even battling anxiety by means of thankful prayer in verses 6 and 7. Every single one of those things requires that we think and meditate and reflect upon the truth of God and how we might best go about putting those things into practice. If Paul means to fuel our progress in gentleness by telling us the Lord is near, for example, in verse 5, Surely he wants us to think and meditate and reflect upon the certainty of the Lord's coming and the implications that his return has in the believer's life and how those implications bear on our being gentle with one another. He wouldn't put that in there unless he expected us to think through those things. And every single one of those means of stability requires that we take them out of the realm of mere theory and ideas And that we discipline ourselves to actually put them into practice. It does no good to settle it in your mind that you're going to forgive a brother or sister with whom you've had a conflict and come to terms with Paul's instruction that you must be of the same mind in the Lord and yet never actually go to that person and restore unity. You can have a perfectly biblical understanding of the necessity of Christian unity in the body of Christ and yet be without the the self-discipline to put those principles for unity into practice. And when you do that, you will never hope to avail yourselves of the means that Paul provides for spiritual stability. The abandonment of godly thinking and the abandonment of godly practice are absolutely toxic to true biblical steadfastness. Neither of these errors characterizes the spiritually stable man or woman of God. The spiritually stable Christian is the one who gives himself to the rigors of deep and disciplined thought and who gives himself to the diligent application and practice of the truths he claims to know. And so, in our text this morning, Paul deals a death blow, a crippling one two punch to these twin errors. Let's read the text together, Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul seeks to equip us to battle the the twin errors of intellectual laziness and practical laziness by means of a twofold summons. In verse 8, he issues a summons to godly thinking. And in verse 9, he issues a summons to godly practice. That'll be our outline, those two summonses, the summons to godly thinking and a summons to godly practice. These verses constitute the climax of all that Paul has taught on what it means to stand firm in the Lord. Unity, joy, gentleness, and killing anxiety through prayer. All of that teaching culminates in the principles that Paul issues in verses 8 and 9. And we see that by means of the word finally at the beginning of verse 8. These verses act as a summary of all that has gone before. Finally, do these things. And their relationship to the other graces that we've studied is such that without faithfully submitting to these two imperatives, we will fail to truly implement all the rest. And so in our time together this morning, we're going to examine these two overarching summarizing directives so that we might successfully implement these means of spiritual stability. Well, in the first place, then, let's consider this summons to godly thinking. Read verse 8 with me again. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, the key word in that sentence is this command that comes just at the end that I emphasize there, and I want to consider that first. Paul commands us to dwell on these things. And that word is the Greek word logizomai, from which we get the word logic and logical. It's, it's got this basic meaning to think, to reason. But the NAS has done a good job at translating it to dwell on, because it's not the word that you would expect Paul to use for regular thinking. Now, this is a word that calls for reflection, for intentional consideration, for pondering, for taking into account, and for letting one's mind dwell on something. The Apostle Paul uses this word in Romans 6, verse 11, when he exhorts the child of God, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus Consider yourselves. Think of yourselves this way. Meditate on these truths of the gospel such that you can come to regard yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So that's what we're talking about here. This is a patient deliberation and evaluation that allows somebody some sufficient time and sufficient seriousness to come to grips with a certain reality. And note, it is this kind of, of reflective, considerate, ponderous meditative thinking that Paul commands us to invert in this verse this kind of serious thinking is commanded of every believer whatever is true honorable right pure and so on dwell on you dwell on these things the command, just as much as we're commanded not to steal, but to work with our own hands and g- having goods to share with those who are in need, Ephesians 4, just as much as we're commanded not to lie, but to speak truth each one of us to our neighbor, just as much as we're commanded not to murder or commit adultery, so are we commanded to think and think rigorously in the Christian life. And not only is it an imperative it's a present imperative, which means it's a duty that we carry out continuously and at all times. This kind of sober and reflective thought upon the noblest of things is to characterize our lives. We're not commanded to dwell on these things only some of the time, uh, in, in specially set aside blocks of time which we devote for serious study. There may be those times, but this is a call to a constant pattern of our lives, a habit. We are to be continually considering, reflecting, and dwelling upon these spiritual virtues, meditating on their implications. Commentator Walter Hansen summarizes the thought helpfully. He writes, Paul is calling for followers of Christ to be attentive, reflective, meditative thinkers. Developing a Christian mind and character requires a lifetime of discerning and disciplined thought. And the centrality of the mind is a theme that is replete throughout the Scriptures. Just read off a number of verses. You might write down the references and, and turn there uh, on your own time later. But in Matthew 22, 37, the Lord Jesus says, The greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. In Romans twelve two, Paul commands, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed By the renewing of your mind. So transformation into Christ-likeness happens by the renewing of our mind. Christianity, the process of the Christian life, is a lifelong renewal of the mind. In Romans 8.5, Paul says that what you set your mind on is reflective of who you are. He says, For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, the Proverbs put that same sentiment so simply, Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Colossians chapter 3 that Devaraj read for us earlier, Paul says, Our union with Christ in His death and resurrection has consequences for our minds. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And finally, in contrast to those who think that every legitimate spiritual truth should be immediately obvious and accessible with little concentrated thought, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 7, he says, consider what I say, or the ESV has think over what I say, the NIV has reflect on what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So by what means will the Lord give you understanding in spiritual truth when you consider, think over, reflect on the Scripture that Paul and others are writing to us? And so it makes sense that Pastor John would say in reference to this text that, quote, careful thinking is the distinctive mark of the Christian faith. Now that's quite a statement, but it's a legitimate representation of Paul's teaching in this text. Martin Lloyd Jones commenting on Jesus' instruction not to worry in the Sermon on the Mount, the text that we read last week in Matthew 6. Martin Lloyd Jones wrote this Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds, think about them, and draw your deductions. That's what Jesus is commanding us in that text. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field, consider them, and then live in a certain way. It's a great observation. And remember, again, by placing this command here in a portion of Scripture which functions as the summary and culmination of previous directives on maintaining spiritual stability, Paul is plainly teaching us that spiritual stability is a result of how a person thinks. You want to be stable? You want to be steadfast? You want to be immovable? There are going to be consequences for that on your mind. The wisdom of the world conceives of faith as this irrational leap in the dark, something that that takes over in spite of all manner of sound reason. I just don't understand it, but, you know, I just believe it anyway. Or a, a contentless mystical encounter with the spiritual realm achieved by emptying your mind, emptying it rather than filling it with these noble things that Paul gives us here. The world thinks of faith as merely positive thinking. They look at this text and say, oh, wonderful. Yes, just think about whatever is noble. Think about whatever is good. Think about whatever is lovely. Positive thinking, as if your thoughts and beliefs had an effectual and creative power to them. They do not. And cutting across the grain of all of those worldly ideas, Scripture says that the Christian life is dominated by filling the mind with God's revelation as He's given it to us in the Scripture. The Christian life is dominated by that kind of thinking and that, that understanding in the Christian life comes by considering and reflecting on what Scripture says. And here in, in our text, in Philippians 4, he says that you will not grow in grace. You just won't be spiritually stable unless you are deliberately cultivating a habit of meditating on and thinking deeply about the truths of God's Word. Now, I think I've sufficiently... Beaten that into your minds. We've clearly seen that central importance of thinking. But this text doesn't only highlight the necessity of thinking. It also directs us as to the content of our thoughts, what we are to think about. It it does no good to be persuaded that you must exercise your mind in the Christian life if you set your mind on the wrong things. And so again, we have the statement from the Apostle Paul that the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. That's the difference there. We're told, again, in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You see, not only does the gospel limit boundaries of what we believe, it certainly does that. The gospel says, turn from your sin, turn from your self-righteousness, stop trusting your own good works or lack of bad works and trust in Christ alone. Believe that He is sufficient alone to avail for your righteousness before God. The gospel asks us to believe those things. The gospel also asks us to do certain things. The gospel has implications for our conduct. We've been learning about that all throughout Philippians. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But not only does the gospel limit the boundaries of what we believe, not only does it limit the boundaries of what we do, the practices that we involve ourselves in, the implications of the gospel reach even to our thoughts. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And In this verse, Paul gives us, Six specific virtues upon which we're to fix our minds first and then two virtues stated more generally at the end to make his comprehensive intent plain. And I want to briefly examine each of these virtues in their turn. First, Paul says we're to dwell on whatever is true, whatever is true. The things that are true are those things which correspond to reality. The things that are true stand in direct contrast to all that is false and all, that is fantasy. As Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who said of himself, I am the truth, as children of the living God whom Scripture calls the God of truth, we are not to give our minds to that which is false. We are not to expose our minds for extended periods of time in falsehood and in fantasy. We're to be preoccupied with truth, with reality, and of course, God is the ultimate arbiter of what reality is, and He has set that truth and reality before us in His precious Word. Jesus Himself said, your Word, praying to the Father, your Word is truth. David in Psalm nineteen nine, speaking of the Word of God, says the judgments of the Lord are true. And then the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 151 says, all your commandments are truth. And so to dwell upon whatever is true, first of all, it means to give ourselves over to reflection, to meditation, to ruminating upon the word of God as it is revealed in Scripture. It's as we read and analyze and think about and consider what is said, 2 Timothy 2, 7, that we will obey this command to fix our minds upon whatever is true. And then, as we grow accustomed to this word, as it makes its home within us, We internalize that standard of truth and become able to discern those things in the world which are true and which are false, which are reliable and which are unreliable, which are in accord with God's own mind and in accord with the gospel and those things which are not. Whatever is true. Secondly, we're to dwell upon whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. This word refers to that which is noble, that which is lofty and dignified, and majestic, and august, and that which is worthy of respect and reverence. This is the opposite of that which is frivolous and mundane. The word is used frequently throughout the pastoral epistles to describe the conduct of men and women of dignity. It's a key word. In Titus 2.2, Paul instructs that older men are to be temperate, dignified, there's our word, and sensible, and then in Titus 2, 7, and 8, he instructs Titus, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach or so that the opponent will have nothing to say about us. Verse Timothy 3, 8, we're told that deacons likewise must be men of dignity. And in verse 11, that requirement's repeated for women as well. Women must be likewise dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful In all things. And so there's this this common thread of dignity, of nobility, of gravity. That's the way the old translators uh, used to translate it gravity. We're not to be frivolous and flippant, dominated by a perpetual levity such that everything is a joke and we just can't be serious. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, A garish levity will not become them that live in constant communion with God. A garish levity will not become them that live in constant communion with God. You see, there's to be something about us Christians, something about us in our demeanor that makes it plain to the world that we live in constant contact and communion with the God of heaven himself. And I'm not saying that that means we have to be overly solemn and overly earnest and always walking around morose. No, we, were, we are to rejoice in the Lord always. I, I preached on that a couple of weeks ago. Go listen to that if you think you hear me saying that. But we are not to be sort of these sort of flippant, light, frivolous, goofy, buffoonish type people. Some of you need to hear that. <laughs> and so... All of that means that we must turn our thoughts to lofty, elevated, transcendent themes. We're not to fill our minds with trivialities and frivolities, but with with things that are worthy of awe and adoration. One writer said, "...things that lift the mind from the cheap and the tawdry to that which is noble and good and of moral worth." You hear Pastor John say this all the time in the worship service, usually either after the instrumental or the, uh, the offertory, that we purposefully employ the kind of worship music that we do because it is transcendent, because it is elevated, because it lifts you up. It doesn't drag you through the mud. It isn't ugly and coarse and garish, like Thomas Manton said. Well, third, we are to set our minds upon whatever is right. And I'm tempted to say more about dignity, well, just, just a word. <laughs> I'm trying to be a good pastor here. There is a dignity, there is a manner of being dignified that we need to carry ourselves with that's incompatible with being sort of impish and sort of, well, okay, you know, sorry. You know, that kind of, that kind of, I don't get it. There's this sort of, this sort of weirdness or a lack of, a, of awareness of your own circumstances and, and how you come off. That's something that people don't usually think relates to Christianity. That's something that's sort of just like a personality quirk. No, to be dignified means to know yourself. And it means to know the way that you sound in the situations in which you sound. Then there's a time to be goofy. You can. There's a time that you can do that. There's a time that you can't. And if you're marked, if you're known by that sort of like <laughs> levity kind of thing, oh, oh, sorry, I didn't think about it that's not something that's okay. That's something that you do need to work on in your life. That's something that you do need to mortify as if it was a sin like any other sin. You will not be dignified. You won't be, 1 Timothy 3, deacon qualified if that's characterizing you. I could say more. But thirdly, we're to set our minds upon whatever is right, whatever is right. And this is the same word that refers to God's righteousness or justice, that is, whatever conforms to the standard that is set by God's own holy character and nature as it is revealed in Scripture. God himself is righteous, and so our minds are to be given to thinking over and meditating upon him and his attributes, his perfections, as the old writers used to call them. And not only is he righteous, but all that he does is righteous. And so like the people of God throughout the ages, we, we are to call to mind the righteous acts of the Lord and worship Him for all He does. Whatever is right speaks of justice, balanced scales. Think of it this way. On one side of the scale, you have the purity and holiness that is essential to God's own nature. And on the other side of the scale, you have your mind and the things that you allow to occupy your mind. Paul is saying that what goes into our mind must balance the scale, must be in proportion with God's own righteousness. To the extent that the scale is off, we need to do something. We need to change. It also means that we don't fix our minds on and muse upon ways to, to beat the system, to cheat others, to, to cut corners, or to get ahead. We're not to be schemers. Proverbs six eighteen. one of the six things the Lord hates is a heart that devises wicked plans. So rather than devising wicked plans, we ought to devise holy plans. We're to think upon situations of of conversation and interaction with other believers and and give thought to how we might bring grace and edification with our words in that situation, how we might encourage one another and, and be considerate. Those things require forethought. They require attention, meditation ahead of time, getting yourself in the habit of doing that so that when you find yourself in that situation, it comes out as a matter of course. So far from devising wicked plans, we're to let our minds be preoccupied with how we can be upright, how we can be just, how we can be fair, how, can we, how we can see, it, see to it rather that no one within our sphere of influence is defrauded or, or taken advantage of. That's what it means to think on whatever is right. Fourth, we're to dwell upon whatever is pure, whatever is pure. And purity, of course, speaks of holiness, of integrity those things which are not tainted in any way by evil paul uses this word to describe a pure virgin in second corinthians 11 verse 2 it's translated chaste in first peter 3 verse 2 as peter instructs women of disobedient husbands or wives of disobedient husbands to be submissive to them such that they might win them without a word spoken and he says as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior so this speaks of moral purity, of uprightness, and even of innocence, you know, being free from guilt and blemish. And surely this has strong implications for those things that we choose for our entertainment, the things we occupy ourselves with for recreation. This has implications for our choice of leisure reading material. It has implications for our TV watching. It has implications for our choice of movies. It has implications for our internet surfing. And I'm sure that the Philippians would have loved for Paul to to give them a list, you know, to just give me an exhaustive list. Okay, uh, this theater is okay and acceptable, but don't go to that play. Now, you can attend this gathering, but that one is off limits. But Paul doesn't tread upon the ground of cultural legalism here. In the wisdom of God, he gives us principles Principles that we're to meditate upon and internalize, and then within those boundaries we're to apply those principles according to our conscience, that we're to fill with and inform with the Word of God. That's wise. As I'm studying this text, I'm kind of racking my brain to think of, okay, let me think of practical examples, and that's something that you all need to do in your own time with the Lord in this text as you reflect upon it. But there's wisdom in Paul not giving a set of, a, of an exhaustive list of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Be- because that is, and when we try to make that list, we err as well. Because that is a sort of, like I said, cultural, not even doctrinal or salvific legalism, but cultural legalism that tries to strain out a gnat and swallows a camel. But we're to dwell upon whatever, whatever, whatever is pure. The comprehensiveness is matched only by its indistinctness. And that can be frustrating, but it's, I think it's also beautifully wise. And so if you deliberately put yourself in the way of books or magazines and TV shows and movies and websites that are going to expose your minds to sexual impurity, to foul language, to sinful patterns of life, you, my friend, are in violation of this commandment. We are to fix our eyes and our minds on what is pure. When we're tempted to dwell upon those things which are impure, we must, as the song says, turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and pray with all our might that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 1 John 3, 2 calls us, Beloved, we are children of God. And we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone, verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, even as he himself is pure. Well, quickly on to number five. Fifth, we're to dwell upon whatever is lovely. Whatever is lovely. And this refers to those things which call forth and inspire and evoke love. Things that are pleasing, agreeable, amiable, lovely. One commentator says, These things give pleasure to all and cause distaste to none like a welcome fragrance. It's a lovely illustration. (laughs) A welcome fragrance. Something that makes you just want to stop and take a deep breath. ah, And you smell that and that's refreshing and pleasant. The contrast is also effective. It would be a very offensive odor, like getting too close to someone who, it's evident, has been quite, shall we say, active on a hot day, like walking by an open sewer gate on the street and smelling that raw sewage. What is that? Oh, let's get away from that. So like we said about those things which are honorable and dignified, we're to give our minds to winsome and delightful things, elevated and lovely things, not that which is raw and crude and ugly and distasteful. And then sixth, we're to dwell upon whatever is of good repute, whatever has a good reputation, whatever is well spoken of by those whose minds are upright. That's just fairly plain. So I'm going to move on for the sake of time. And then finally, Paul reaches the crescendo with these final two all-encompassing catch-all terms. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If I've left anything out in my list of virtues with which you're to occupy your mind, If there's anything in the world that comes under the heading of moral excellence, and if there's anything that's worthy of praise before God and before godly men, dear people, think on these things. Be occupied with these things. Give your mind and your attention and your energy to these things. You see, friends, we're not to give ourselves to the constant preoccupation with evil. We're to examine ourselves before God and we're to ask Him to search us and try us and see if there be any hurtful way in us. But we're not to be morbidly introspective regarding our own sinfulness. Some of you are so constantly focused on your own failures that you're anxious and depressed and despondent. And Paul calls you to look outside of yourselves and away from yourselves to the loveliness and virtue of Christ. And to trust in him who accomplished righteousness on your behalf, in your place. Neither are we to be inordinately preoccupied with the evils of the world. Yes, God has called us to be discerning. But some of you have a morbid preoccupation with all the evils in the world. All that occupies your mind is the corruption of the government, the injustices of society, conspiracy theories, the potential for wars, and whether the the political climate is ripe for the arrival of the Antichrist. Others of you have fostered a critical spirit when it comes to the weaknesses of the visible church, the failures of other professing Christians to make progress in grace, and so on and so forth. But Paul says if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, (laughs) dwell on these things. And so... We have been summoned to godly thinking. Now we come to verse 9, where Paul issues his summons to godly practice. Read both verses again with me. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things, or more literally translated, which things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, the first thing to notice here is the inseparable connection between verses 8 and 9. And I tried to bring that out to you even as I read the text. Paul gives his list, whatever is true, honorable, right. And then he says, dwell on these things Which things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, the very things that I'm telling you to set your minds upon are the things that you have learned and received from me and have heard and seen in me. And now, in addition to, to thinking on those things, I'm now also calling you to practice those things. So we learn here that thinking is not only necessary for the Christian life in some general sense, rather thinking is absolutely necessary, is the absolutely necessary foundation for Christian living. That's why Paul puts these exhortations in the order that he puts them. First, we're to fix our minds upon whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and and of good repute. We're to consider those things, to meditate on them, to devote all of our attention to them and even to devising ways of bringing them about in our lives and then, having filled our minds with those things, we're to bring them into our daily practice. You see, right behavior doesn't just spring up out of nowhere. Right behavior comes from right thinking. The wholesome fruit of godly practice comes from the properly kept and cultivated soil of godly thinking. I'm going to say that one again. The wholesome fruit of godly practice comes from the properly kept and cultivated soil of godly thinking. You see, truth is first perceived in the mind. And as it is perceived and understood in the mind, that truth gives rise to your affections, what you love and what you hate, what you desire and what you long for, and and what you repudiate. And your affections then excite your will. And then your will directs your actions. Mind, affections, will, actions. So it all comes back to the mind. Your actions will not be right unless your mind is right. That's why the psalmist prayed, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Psalm 119.34 Why wouldn't he simply pray that he would just keep the law with all my heart? Lord, make me keep your law with all my heart. Because he knew that first his mind, his understanding had to be affected. And so godly thinking is the absolutely essential foundation for godly practice. The person who aims to bring forth the good fruit of godly practice without being firmly rooted in the soil of sound theology is like the seed which sprouted among the rocky soil that Jesus talks to us about. It springs up quickly and it makes a good show of things on the outside, but as time passes, it withers away. Why? Because it has no root. The Bible teaches us that the fruit of God-glorifying deeds come directly from the the root of God-glorifying creeds. And so that answers the first error that we spoke about at the beginning, that intellectual laziness that refuses to engage in any serious thought and is only worried about what things look on the outside. Don't bother me with all that theology. What matters is that I give to CHF and that I give to missions and that I do all these good things. Don't worry about how I think. Just worry about what I do. No, that's exactly wrong. Paul says, dwell on these things, then practice them. But this text also addresses that second error, the, the practical laziness that is content with theory only. The person fails to put the theology he knows into practice. In fact, theology not practiced is theology aborted. As I said before, the whole purpose of disciplined study of the scriptures and deep theological thought is to have the truth mold your affections, to have your affections inform your will and to have your will spur you on to love and good deeds. That is the teaching of this text. Just as surely as Paul commanded us to think, Paul also commands us, verse nine, practice these things, practice them. And I love the comments Martin Lloyd-Jones makes on this point. He writes, you see the perfection of the apostles' method? In verse 8, he's dealt with the realm of thought. Ah, but the apostle knows the subtle danger that is always confronting us, the danger of being content with theoretical knowledge, the danger of being satisfied with doctrine only, the danger of failing to put into practice that which we know. You can be a great student even of the Bible and live a life that is utterly contrary to it. This is great. It is the masterpiece of Satan to make us put theory and practice into separate watertight compartments, to make men so interested in the book that they forget to apply its teaching. What you have seen, says Paul, practice. And those comments are everywhere confirmed by Scripture. James writes, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves anyone is a hearer of the word not a doer he's like a man who looks into a mirror sees his natural face goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like but one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty abides by it James says not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer this man will be blessed in what he does this man not the not the other man will be blessed Lord Jesus in John chapter 13 Models the, the life of the sacrificial service that, that his followers are called to render to one another as he, the master, stooped and washed the feet of his slaves. He tells them that he's done so to leave them an example and in verse 13, John 13:17, 13, he says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. What's the implication? If you know these things and don't do them, you are not Blessed. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his excellent treatise, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, comments on this verse, Know that it is not the knowing, nor the talking, nor the reading man, but the doing man that at last will be found the happiest man. Know that it is not the the knowing, nor the talking, nor the reading man, but the doing man that at last will be found the happiest man. And finally, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 7. I know we don't have too much time left, but this is important enough that I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 7 is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. After all that Jesus has said in that magnificent sermon about the nature of his kingdom and the character of the subjects of that kingdom, this is what he wants left ringing in the ears of his hearers. Matthew 7 verse 24. Therefore... The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. You want to build on the solid rock and not on the sinking sand. You must think on these things, but you also must practice these things. You say, okay, Mike, you've convinced me. I need to put my theology into practice. But How am I going to do that? How do I go about bringing forth the good fruit of godly practice in my life? Our text answers that question as well. Look with me again at verse 9. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. And briefly, I see two categories of thought here. The first means of of implementing godly practice is to appropriate godly instruction. Paul speaks of the things that the Philippians learned and received from him. Things that they learned and received refer to the teaching and the instruction that Paul imparted to them while he was with them. Their learning of it emphasizes more Paul's initial instruction to them and their receiving it emphasizes more that the instruction had taken root in their hearts. But both are referring to that same reality of of the instruction that Paul gave when he was with them. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I'm I'm thankful that uh, when you received the word of God, you received it as it was, the word of God and not the word of men. But the content of his instructions wasn't merely the doctrines of grace, or the doctrines of the grace of the gospel of Christ. As precious as those doctrines are, he also instructed them, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, in Christian living. He says, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction to how you ought to walk and please God, excel still more. Note that. He instructed them both in Christian doctrine and in Christian living. Now he calls the Philippians to appropriate that instruction. And secondly, you've got to emulate godly examples. Appropriate godly instruction that you receive from your leaders. Emulate godly examples. Paul says that the Philippians have not only learned and received from him instruction, but also that they have observed these things practiced in his own life they can follow his godly example the things that they heard refers to the reports that they would hear about him from say timothy or epaphroditus who would bring back news of paul how is paul is he discouraged praise god no he's rejoicing and he's and he's courageous and he's steadfast in the faith and and he's facing imprisonment and facing his trial before Nero but he's fastened his mind upon truth and he's fixed his thoughts on the things that are right and honorable and lovely then he's practicing these things as well and they would have heard that and they would have been strengthened to obey as well and then the things that they saw in him refer to that pattern of life that they had been able to observe when with their own eyes when he was with them seeing that he not only talked the talk but he walked the walk They were able to observe that Paul lived and ministered in integrity because the very things that he preached were the things that he practiced. And so he could say, not with haughtiness, not with pride, follow me as I follow Christ. And though my time is very nearly gone, the brief word of application I have for you at this point is to grasp how vitally important discipleship is in the Christian life. This godly teaching that you're to appropriate and this godly example that you are to emulate, this doesn't come from sitting on your couch in your pajamas live streaming the service. And listen, it doesn't even come primarily from coming to Grace Church and coming to Grace Life and sitting and listening to sermons. Oh, it comes from that, that not less than that, but it's more than that. This is an entering into and and cultivating relationships with other believers who are sound in the faith and in some cases who are more mature in the faith than you are and committing yourselves to living life together, navigating life's various trials alongside one another. There needs to be a person like the Apostle Paul in your life to whom you look for specific and practical instruction both in Christian doctrine and in the daily everyday aspects of Christian living. Just some footsteps that I can walk in the pattern of. So that you might learn to put into practice the things that you're taught. And and Phil and I and the other pastors and elders, we know that that's our responsibility and we take it very seriously. And we wish that we could get to know every single one of you personally and intimately and disciple you individually on a regular basis. There'd be nothing that gives us greater joy than that. And we have the joy of doing that with some of you and it's an immense privilege But Christ hasn't designed the church so that the the pastors do all the work of the ministry, right? Ephesians 4. But that the pastors equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I don't know if there's any more important ministry than sharpening one another, living life alongside one another, speaking the truth to one another, laboring with somebody through repentance, through putting off and putting on. And so this is something that you need to do with one another, friends, And the principal way at which that happens at a church this large is through home Bible studies. You need to be faithfully attending one of our Bible studies where you can walk alongside 15 to 20 other Christians trying to please Christ in the same challenging and hostile world that you're walking in. Where you can be shepherded and cared for by a team of men who are trained and willing to do so and with whom we, your pastors and elders, have very close contact and frequent contact. And so we're constantly hearing about you and hearing updates and, and, and pastoral needs and things to celebrate. So don't cut yourself off from that blessing any longer. Get involved in a Bible study and pour your life into the people there. And if you do all that, if you give yourself to the discipline, of sound, biblical, godly thinking, and if you commit yourself to putting that theory into practice by appropriating godly instruction and emulating godly examples paul has a promise of reward for you at the end of verse 9 he says so think and so practice and the consequence will be that the god of peace will be with you what a glorious promise To the extent that we fix our minds upon all that is excellent and praiseworthy and to the extent that we practice the truth that we have learned, we will enjoy the presence of the God of peace himself. We will enjoy deeper dimensions of intimacy and communion with him than we ever thought possible when we were giving our minds to lesser things, when we were failing to bring into practice all that we knew. We will enjoy the sweet fellowship of God himself with an uncondemned conscience, the likes of which careless walkers in the Christian life will never know. And that presence of God will bring the peace it brought to Moses who, when he said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and command him, the ruler of the entire empire, to let the Israelites go? When God responded, certainly I will be with you. It'll bring the peace it brought to Joshua who as he was leading the second generation of Israelites out from the wilderness and into the land of Canaan to conquer it when he he was promised just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you, nor will I forsake you. It will bring the peace it brought to David who wrote those beautiful words in Psalm 23 verse four, even though I should walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why for you, are with me friends is not that promise the promise that the god of peace himself will be with you is that not sufficient to elicit from you the most diligent and devoted self-discipline both of your mind and of your life if it's not you've got to come to grips with the reality that if you don't treasure the fellowship of that God of peace, you've got to come to the reality that you very well may be still dead in your trespasses and sins. That the very thing that gives you the greatest satisfaction that you were designed to enjoy is numb to your affections. means you need new spiritual affections. Friend, you need to be born again. And so I would urge you to look upon Christ who is the epitome of all that is true and honorable and praiseworthy and excellent and noble and right and just. Turn from yourself and ask him, open my eyes that I might see that beauty, that I might repent of treasuring lesser things and worshiping these other things, going to broken cisterns that can hold no water when I could come to the fountain of living waters. Pray that he would open your eyes and that he would make himself sweet to you it would save you and if you answer yes that promise is sufficient oh it is I want him to be with me I want more than anything else that the God of peace should be with me I'll point you to Jesus Christ just the same all the more excel still more run in the way of disciplining your, your heart and mind to think on these godly virtues and then discipline yourself whatever it takes to bring those things into practice I'm going to close the, with the words of Alexander McLaren, that great Scottish expositor. He says, All these things, true, venerable, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, are not things only. They are embodied in a person. For whatever things are fair, meet in Jesus Christ. And he... And his living self is the sum of all virtue and of all praise. So that if we link ourselves to him by faith and love and take him into our hearts and minds and abide in him, we have them all gathered together into that one. Thinking on these things is not merely a meditating upon abstractions, but it is clutching and living in and with and by the living, loving Lord and Savior of us all. If Christ is in my thoughts... All good things are there and may he be in your thoughts and may you practice the deeds that come from those thoughts. Father, we just ask that you would confirm your word to the hearts of your people. Cause us to be a thinking people, passionately committed also to practicing these truths that we love and treasure in our minds. Confront and convict those who need it. Cause us the healing that comes from your word and shape us even more into the the likeness of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.